my name is Willis Weatherford. I think the for those of you who are new, the odd 33-year-old man up front deserves an explanation. So I'm the campus minister, the campus pastor, which means full-time role here is to help you see and savor Jesus in his word and hopefully wrestle with him. Not to try to force something down your throat or you know, make you believe the exact way that I believe, but to help you ask your questions to Jesus and see what his answers are in God's word and wrestle with that. And I love doing that. I love being here. And uh, what RUF is, it's an international ministry, a, a campus ministry, a Christian ministry on the college campus, but we're here for Christians and non-Christians, right? And so, like I said, what we want is for tonight, you in this room, to wrestle with Jesus, maybe in a way that you haven't wrestled with him before. And the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to do that, which is where we are. So let me read this passage. Read this passage. Uh, We're in Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And then the related passage from Exodus, which we all probably know by heart. Thou shalt not murder. This is God's word. It's true and it's given to us in love. And I, I share these words with you not because I'm some kind of a super holy person or a super good person. I'm not. As I say every week, uh, I'm not a good person. But Jesus loves me and he loves you. And that changes truly everything. And tonight we're going to look at how that changes anger. How it changes our anger. I thought about anger when I saw, I was watching the Super Bowl, like many of you, and uh, the first half was not going so good for the Chiefs, and their tensions were kind of high, and all of a sudden, this 250-pound tight end comes down the sideline towards his coach, and kind of gives him a little shove. You guys saw this, right? With Kelsey and with Coach Reed, and I mean, I'm watching this, and I'm like, whoa, like, what is happening right here? And you know, like I said, passions were high. He's frustrated because he, want, he wants to be on the field and you know, wants to be getting the ball, and he wasn't playing that great that quarter anyway. So we can kind of get it, but like, there's some anger there. There's some heat there. And both of them kind of downplayed it after, like, in the after-game interviews. Obviously, they just won the Super Bowl, so they were willing to overlook a lot, which is great. Um, but I wonder, like, did they have a conversation about that? Like, are they good now? I don't know. You may not weigh 250 pounds and be dating Taylor Swift, I'm guessing in this room, but I bet that you feel that anger when things don't go your way, right? Following our passage, we're going to dig into this issue of anger in three parts. Part one, our murderous hearts. Part two, the heart of Jesus for angry people. And part three, how angry people follow Jesus. So our murderous hearts, the heart of Jesus for angry people, and how angry people follow Jesus. So before we go there, let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to be in your word tonight. 
I mean, it is uh, over 2,000 years old. And, um, well, this passage is technically a little bit less than 2,000. But anyway, it's old. It's really old. And it was written in a different language. And some of us are wondering here, what does this have to do with my life? And so Jesus, if you are who you claim to be and who your word claims that you are, the God of the universe who does not lie, who speaks truly and invites us to live a new kind of life with you in freedom and in joy. We ask that you would show up by your Holy Spirit and show us something true here that feels and rings true to us. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's start on that, that first part of this passage. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So in the first verse, Jesus brings up the sixth commandment. That's what he's quoting. That's why it's on the handout. You shall not murder. And that Hebrew word for murder included both murder, but also what we would call um, manslaughter and wrongful death which is either unintentionally killing someone or through negligence, unintentionally causing the death of someone else. So Hebrew word includes all three of those categories. And they're all three forbidden by the sixth commandment. Um, and it kind of, this sixth commandment is interesting. It kind of comes like a breath of fresh air to the first five because all the first five, if you remember them, are like really hard to keep. And you're like, what does that even mean? But the fifth, it's like, do not murder. And you're like, good, Okay. Didn't murder today, check the box. Walk away, success. But Jesus says, okay, not so fast. The people in his day related to this law, the law of not murdering, the same way that we do. Kind of like, oh, sweet, I haven't murdered, haven't negligently caused someone's death today. I guess I'm good. And Jesus says, you may not have killed somebody, but you have a murderous heart. Let's unpack that. The first murder recorded in the Bible was Cain's murder of his brother Abel, Genesis 4. Abel's heart is right with God, and his offering is accepted. But Cain's heart is not, and his offering is not accepted, and that makes him angry. So note this passage I'm about to read. Uh, it includes the personal name of God, Yahweh. So when I say Yahweh, that's just the Old Testament name of God, just so you know. Okay, so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So Cain reveals the murderous heart of anger. It's the heart that doesn't keep its brother. It's the heart that doesn't desire the welfare of others. It's the heart that doesn't take concern for the health and joy of the other person, but is only concerned with, occupied with, what? Pride? Self-absorption? The misguided desire that we all feel, myself included, to just be in control. To just be able to kind of have things go the way that we think they should go. Have things, uh, and when that prideful desire is thwarted, 
as it inevitably is, we get angry. Maybe not angry enough to murder, but notice when God speaks to Cain, it's not after he kills his brother, it's before he kills his brother. He saw the murderous tendency of his anger in his heart, and that same tendency is still in our hearts with our anger. It says, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoa. This is pretty intense. When it says insults, it should know this is like... Um, the, the word there is kind of bad-mouthing somebody's intelligence, like, oh, they're just an idiot. They're a moron. And when it says, you fool, that's talking more about like calling someone a worthless person, actually judging them to be worthless. So this can happen in the Walmart checkout line when the checkout lady is so slow. Uh, it can happen uh, in the political debate when you're watching them and you're like, this person, what are they thinking? This can happen when you're watching the YouTube video and just kind of like almost delighting at how dumb this person is. Whether our anger stays in our own hearts or is expressed with insults against their intelligence or is expressed with an expletive that names their entire person as worthless, Jesus says the whole spectrum makes you as guilty as murder does. And this is true because sinful anger displaces love. There is an anger that's not sinful, this Christ-like anger. We'll get to that in a second. But sinful anger is sinful because it displaces love. And we're called to love our neighbor, always. So it's this kind of anger Jesus is speaking against. We, when we cease to want the good of the other and instead want them to hurt like they've hurt us. When instead of loving our enemy and praying for them, we stew on our injuries and rehearse what we'd like to say to them over and over and over. Maybe never actually say it, but like, man, it is in there. Rather than gently telling someone how they hurt us, we get on fizz and just roast them anonymously, right? It happens. And Jesus tells us, in God's eyes, this kind of anger makes us as guilty before God as we would be if we had actually murdered someone. Let that sink in. Like, imagine what it would be like to have the guilt of actually having killed someone. That's heavy. And Jesus says, y'all are all carrying that around every day. So let's talk about Christ-like anger versus sinful anger. Uh, the two are very different. You kind of have to go there. Because all of us are maybe wondering at this point, like, okay, like, can I be angry at all? And what's the difference? Okay. So I made this. Um, Christ-like anger over here. Sinful anger over here. Okay, the why. What is the cause of the anger? With Christ-like anger, the cause is love. For instance... You love your dog and someone kicks your dog, you get angry. Christ-led anger, right? Sinful anger is pride. Uh, fill in the blank, right? Like someone cuts in line in front of you and it's like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe they did that. And sure, that's annoying. But like when it goes to, maybe it's a bad example, but I think you said I'm saying pride is like, I've been inconvenienced. I deserve to have things go my way and it didn't anger. Okay. The what, or sorry, the want what does the anger want? Sinful anger wants the other person to hurt like I've been hurt, or even worse, perhaps. It wants either their obliteration or their harm, or some lesser degree of that. Or maybe just like their minor inconvenience. I hope that they get a flat tire, you know? Whereas the want of Christ-like anger is like, I want it to be better. I want the situation to be better. So Christ flips the tables in the temple when he's angry because the people are using the temple that is meant to be a place of the worship of God and they're using it to have profit, he flips the tables because he's like, I want this to be the way it's supposed to be. 
I want it to be a place of the worship of the Lord. All right, the act. Christ-like anger. I mean, and this could be, it could be prayer. It could be confrontation. It could be uh, taking it before the Lord and being like, you know, this is not one for me to confront, but God, I need you to carry this one because I can't. Okay, but the act includes at times confrontation, whereas sinful anger, it goes beyond confrontation to either condemnation or attack or maybe just stewing in bitterness all on your own. And the end, like what, what brings an end to Christ-like anger is either forgiveness or reconciliation, whereas sinful anger has no end. It just goes on and on and on, right? And it leads to self-destruction and isolation. So I hope that that metric is helpful to you to evaluate the anger that we all feel. And sure, it's intermixed, right? Sometimes it starts out as like righteous anger and then it turns to unrighteous. So it gets dicey. But how is your own heart murderous? A A few clues. How do you treat people when they offend you? Do you feel justified in giving them the cold shoulder? Telling your friends how they hurt you? How have you insulted politicians and social movements you disagree with? Not only critiquing flawed behavior and arguments, but insulting and belittling the people who hold them as well. How do you express your anger against yourself? With what kind of angry self-condemnation do you do violence to your own soul when you've made a mistake or you're not the person you think you should be? How do you learn, how did you learn angry patterns from your parents? Those patterns stick with us. Are you a wall puncher? Are you a screamer? Are you a silent stewer? You're a gossiper? Or do you manage your anger by escaping into alcohol, substances, pornography, or even just serial relationships? I don't know about you, but I'm ready for some good news from Jesus. Okay? The heart of Jesus for angry people. So we see Jesus tag kind of these two options for angry people. Two different ways that things could play out for angry people like us. First, it says, and this is hard, but it's real. Jesus says, those who persist in anger, whose murderous hearts remain in our sin, are in danger of hell. He says, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And of course, hell is related to anger in another way. It's the ultimate expression of God's anger, his wrath against sin, against those who persist in disobedience against him. And unlike our anger, though, God's anger is different. It's real different. First, it's never quick. It's slow. It's very slow. And it's never based in pride, but in love. Love for his creatures and love for his world, which is harmed by our anger and by all the other sins that we do. And it is this love that expresses itself also in the other option for angry people that we see in our passage and that we see over and over in the work and person of Jesus. You see verse 24, first, be reconciled to your brother. Oh, reconciled. What's this option? It sounds better than hell. Let's look at this one. The option, the, the, there's the possibility of reconciliation with God and people because Jesus loves you. He loves angry people like us. He loves the thief on the cross. He loves the woman caught in adultery. He loves the man born blind, the epileptic boy, the centurion's daughter who had just died. He loves the sinner, the prostitute, the tax collector, the betrayer, 
the persecutor of the church. He loves the murderer, the angry, the helpless, the hopeless, the addicted, the convicted. He loves us. He loves us and our hearts in their angriest spot. Romans 5, 8, and 9 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The love of Jesus is our escape from the wrath of God. This is a little much. Okay, how are we going to wrap our heads around this? God's, he has this deep anger at sin, towards sin, and yet he has this deep love for the sinner. How do we wrestle with this? In God's nature, people are always asking like, is it, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? And this kind of gets at that. It's like there are actually things in God's nature that are not possible for him, right? For instance, God cannot make a rock that it is impossible for him to lift because no such rock is, is like possible in his universe. Okay, so we're gonna, that may not make any sense. We're going to go to a different version of that in this. God's nature is perfectly just and holy and powerful. And God, so God is actually unable to simply overlook evil. He can't just overlook it. But he must call it as it is and punish it as it truly deserves because he is perfectly just and good and powerful. He's unable to pretend that a murderous heart is less guilty than the act of murder. And he's unable in his justice to allow that sin to go unpunished. That may for you be like unacceptable, but that's just the way the Bible talks about who God is and the way he acts. Whereas in our own anger, we turn against the wrongdoer, God turns towards the wrongdoer in his anger, towards us. And he would rather punish himself than punish us. So he invites us to trust Jesus and have all of our sins laid on him. So Jesus put himself forward as a willing sacrifice to absorb our sin and take the full punishment from it so that there's no more punishment left for people like you and me, for our anger, for any other sins that we do, if we trust Jesus as our Savior. So in Christ there is salvation for all those who trust in him. This may feel like I did a hard left from like the issue of our anger and what we do with it, and then I just started talking about the gospel and the cross. And what I'm trying to share with you is that every heart issue we face comes back to the cross. And if we don't meet Jesus there at the cross, we're going to continue carrying all of our anger and all of our shame and everything else because it gets dealt with at the cross and nowhere else. But it doesn't stop there. Where does it lead? How angry people follow Jesus. So let me frame this with what Jesus does not say. Here, Christians, here's how to follow me. This is what Jesus does not say. And I'll use a quote by the megachurch pastor, Joel Osteen. He said, Every day we have plenty of opportunities to get angry, stressed, or offended. But what you're doing when you indulge these negative emotions is giving something outside yourself power over your happiness. You can choose to not let little things upset you. That's not really a biblical idea. This solution to the problem of anger. It's not the gospel. Like just to maximize our own happiness by choosing somehow to not let little things upset you. First of all, what about the big things, which there are some of? And second of all, can we just be real and admit that sometimes the little things, they do upset us. They do. We get angry about little stuff. That's who we are. 
And the solution has to be something better than just like magical pixie dust of like, I'm not going to care about that. It's like, no, we do care. How do we deal with that? Let's, Jesus, let's see what Jesus says. Verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now he gives like a second example, second application. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus, in using these two different examples, both of them say two things. One, the path out of anger is love. And two, the angry Christian wants reconciliation. The path out of anger is love. The angry Christian wants reconciliation. So first, the path out of anger is love. Not venting, not gossip, not retaliation. They won't make you less angry. A lot of times they make you more angry, actually. And they hurt other people. Where do I get this? Notice how the verse is not saying, if you're angry with someone else, do thus and such for them. No, it says, if someone is angry with you, if someone else has something against you. So this is saying, those whose hearts have become salt and light, and their hearts are filled with the love of God, such that when you become aware that someone else is angry with you, you help them to not persist in that anger which is so damaging toward their own soul by moving towards them. We don't want to do this, <laughs> usually. Once we find out someone is angry with us, we don't want to go to them. This is telling you, move towards them and actually like own what you can own. Apologize for what you can apologize for. Pursue reconciliation with that person. So the path out of anger is love for the person that you've wronged, but also for the person that has wronged you. Second thing we see is the anger Christian wants reconciliation and pursues it right? Okay, so you're angry. Your brother has something against you. You have something against your brother. Your accuser is attacking you, attacking you in the court of public opinion. The solution is not to just like, oh, I'm bigger than that. It's fine. I'll just shake it off. Keep going. Not the solution. The solution is to pursue reconciliation at least as far as you can. Okay, so how do we do that? How? I have two ways. First, some healthy alternatives to um, some some healthy ways to express anger that are actually good, that the Bible invites you to. And second, an acronym. Okay, to help you remember. All right. First, the healthy alternative expressions of anger. The Bible over and over invites us to express our sad sadness, anger, confusion in many ways. And this is important because I think I'm quoting Anna Plybon here. Not sure. Anger is often unexpressed sadness. And I would also say sadness can also be unexpressed anger or misdirected anger. It's all mixed up together inside. And so if we want to become less angry people, we have to be like, how do I bring my messy emotions to the Lord? And the Bible tells us we have categories. If you feel guilt, you should confess. If you see wickedness go unpunished, you can pray prayers of imprecation. They're called asking God to call that person to account. Like, Lord, please judge that person. Don't let them get away with it, right? You go read the Psalms, it's all over there. When you feel sadness, you should lament. And we have lost that art in America. It's all about like, just be happy, bootstrap it. This is it, like, you got to mourn, guys. Lament, what does it look like to actually cry out to God, to weep with your friends? And 
if you want to know what these look like in detail, go read the Psalms. There's 150 of them, and there's each of these categories expressed lots of different times. The next thing I want to show you, though, is an acronym, right? Hopefully this helps us think about, like, okay, how do I pursue reconciliation in my life? And I think this applies to big offenses and little ones. Anytime you feel angry, you're called to pursue reconciliation. Here's how. Four A's. Okay, the four A's of anger. So anger is not one of them, so that would be the fifth A. But four A's are appeal, by which I mean pray. So appeal, analyze, apologize, slash ask for forgiveness. That's kind of two at once. Apologize, ask for forgiveness. And four, admonish, which I also have to tweak. I kind of forced the A's, but anyway, you're going to be able to remember it. So appeal, analyze, apologize, and admonish. Let's go through one by one. Appeal, pray. Appeal to the Lord. Pray that God will give you love for the person that you're angry with. That is the only pathway out of anger, is love. And that comes from the Lord, because He loves them. And keep praying throughout the process. If you go have a conversation with them, be praying in the back of your mind through that process, because like we need help with this. And ask for reconciliation. God, please help me do what I can to actually like be good with this person again. Appeal. First step is appeal to pray. Second is analyze. So this is where you get, you go to your room and you sit down and you think about it. And you're like, okay, is there anything that I did in this situation that is like on me? That is my fault. And you may come up with nothing or you may come up with something. And the goal is to come up with something. Usually if you start with appeal and then you spend some time in analysis, you will find something that you can apologize for to that person. I want to note, this analysis should not take place with like five different friends over the course of a week. <laughs> Hey, I just want to get your thought about Susie Lou over here who did this to me. Or I want to get your thought about like Brent and what he said to me. Like that is actually not loving to just kind of gossip it out for a week. That's not the kind of analysis we're talking about. If you need help, go to a trusted mentor who you know is not going to like spout it out all over town and be like, hey, can you help me figure out what's going on here? Analyze. And again, your goal is to rightly understand, have I been, have I been wronged actually and is there anything that, any way that I contributed to this situation? Step three, when the, right, when the time is right, probably not right when it happens and probably not three months later, although better late than never, apologize and ask forgiveness. So take that thing that you have that you can apologize for and apologize for. And that's how you open. Hey, Charlene, I got to apologize to you because I did this and I was wrong and I'm sorry. And I... I want to ask for your forgiveness. And don't leave out that forgiveness piece. That feels awkward a lot of times. A lot of people aren't used to that forgiveness language, but it's actually a beautiful part of the apology. And it's also pragmatically a great opener to like, just like diffuse the situation. Cause they're like, yeah, you did kind of wrong me. So thank you for noticing that. They might be like, okay, you're apologizing for that, but actually this other thing, that's what really offended me. And then you gotta be humble, man. <laughs> and you gotta be like, Lord, please help me like respond graciously. Because remember, the reason you're there in the first place is because like they've wronged you, right? And the Christian is called to bear that burden and like get really humble and apologize. Okay, finally, admonish again, that may be the wrong word. I was looking for the A word, but name what they did to hurt you in this conversation. Be like, hey, when you said this to me, I think that was wrong and it really hurt me. I felt betrayed by you. And then full stop. Ball's in their court. Now you wait. And maybe they apologize. Awesome. Forgiveness. Maybe they don't. That's going to be hard. 
But at least even in that situation, you have done what you could, as far as you could, to pursue reconciliation in that situation. And you have Jesus. You have Jesus to be like, this person never apologized to me, Jesus. He's like, I know, I, I got this. I can handle their sin. And he can change their heart if he wants to. And in the meantime, you can faithfully endure and try to love that person, knowing that Jesus' death on the cross is enough to cover their sin too. So, appeal, analyze, apologize, and ask forgiveness. Admonish. Some of us, in here, we hate the idea of that confrontation to actually like name what they did against us, but you're actually stealing something from someone when you don't give them the chance to actually know, because people are idiots. We're dumb. We don't know how we have ended other people. We have to have someone sometimes bring it up and be like, hey, you did this. Give the chance to apologize. I have seen way too many people on this campus inhabit a smaller and smaller and smaller circle of relationships because they keep getting offended with more and more and more people and just ghosting them and not reconciling. I don't want that for you guys. So let's be different like Jesus. Let's pursue reconciliation. And let me conclude here with what needs to be emphasized throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that as Jesus reveals to us this very dramatic, striking obedience, it's like, what? Anger is as bad as murder? What are you talking about, Jesus? As he does this, the point is not that we can follow the rules perfectly and be actually perfect. It's not the point. It's impossible. The point is that we would see that we are imperfect, see how Jesus actually did perfectly live out everything he's teaching, and in dependence on him, pursue Jesus. Pursue others in love. Pursue obedience. So the point is not despair. It's not a desperate scramble to get as close to perfection as possible. It's daily dependence on Jesus. Relying on him to present us as perfect before the Father. Even though we know we're not perfect, he has made us perfect. And trusting him to daily build us up in his character by the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's walk out of this room tonight, not with like a to-do list of, okay, I gotta like, oh, just gotta root out this anger in my heart, but like, Jesus, I'm an angry person. Will you please make me love people that I'm angry with? Let's do that. Let's pray. Father God, who this one's convicting, Lord. Um, I pray that you would convict us of all the ways, all the places anger is hidden in our hearts against our roommates, classmates, against people we've never met, friends and enemies. And Lord, would you give us the gift of reconciliation by leading us to confess, to lament, to confront lovingly, gently, to pursue reconciliation with others. Lord, that will be a beautiful testament of the power of the gospel. So we ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all take a